Hello, and welcome to Season 4 of Head on History. My name is Ali A. Alomi, your host. I'm glad to be back. We had a, a few weeks off from Season 3, and we are back with the new season. Um, I missed you all. Did you all miss my lovely, wonderful voice, my velvety voice? I spent my time away uh, doing some teaching, uh, finished up some classes that I was teaching, finished grades, uh, published an, an article on uh, women, education, and Islam. Uh, it's up on uh, online. If you're interested, I can send it to you. Uh, and otherwise was a nerd. Hopefully you enjoyed your time off or caught up on Head on History episodes. Um, I was checking our, our numbers and numbers went crazy good during our break for whatever reason everyone was tuning in um, during the holiday seasons in November and in uh, during Christmas time so that was fun uh, and exciting uh, so thank you for all of the, for all of you who are listening thank you for those of you who are joining us again as well as to our new listeners there is some kind of exciting news as well uh, I'd like to share um, I spent my during my time off I had an opportunity Opportunity to uh, join another podcast and discuss a little bit of what it is we do here at Head on History. So if you are interested, um, I, I highly recommend that you check out Drew, who does Wonders of the World podcast, uh, and you can find his, his podcast online. It's a, a, a fantastic, fantastic podcast that goes around the world uh, with, with Drew uh, Vacamp or Vaharan Camp, I'm probably mispronouncing uh, the name, so I do apologize. But you, could, if you go to wonderspodcast.com, you can see all of his episodes. He has this really kind of fascinating podcast that fuses world history, travel, food, wonders of the world all together. He's got some really great uh, episodes that, that you can uh, check out. For example, his latest podcast are on the murals of Panjakanet. It's a really good episode. He's also got the, the temples of Tikal. Uh, a lot of kind of really fantastic substance-based episodes that allow you to travel vicariously uh, through his podcast. So check it out, um, as well as, as hear my interview on there. I joined him. Uh, in November 4th, and we talked about uh, a little bit, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I joined him in uh, earlier than that, and we talked about uh, Mecca, and it was a very interesting episode. We discussed uh, the Hajj pilgrimage, early Islam, we talked about Muhammad, we talked about, uh, you know, what does the Hajj mean for, uh, for Muslims. Um, it was a really uh, interesting podcast. It came out in November, really fun to do. He was a really easy interviewer, um, and I highly recommend it. So go to wonderspodcast.com, check out the episode on Mecca, uh, check out uh, the uh, November 4th episode with the talks about the beginnings of Islam, the arrival of Muhammad, the building of these mosques, and what it means for Islam and, and world history. A really interesting podcast, if I could say so myself. All right, my friends, this season we are going to talk about the empires of faith. Now, this is based on a class that I teach, a 10-week course, world history, and it's ancient world history. It starts in the ancient world, and it 
ends in the rise of the medieval world, we end with the Ottomans. I'm not sure I'm going to be talking about the Ottomans in this podcast. I've talked about them in previous. Up until now, we've been dedicating the podcast mostly to the history of Islam. But I want to kind of expand outward and look more broadly at the ancient Near East and really set the stage for the coming of Islam. So the first season, we gave you a brief chronology of Islam. Second season, we dug deep into the themes of Islam, looking at the intellectual trajectory. Season three, we explored what we called the other Islam. That was Islam at the borders. Now we're going to go back in time. looking at the ancient world and setting the stage for how the Middle East comes about. We're going to talk about the Near East. Now, what I should be clear about here is that this doesn't mean I'm going to be talking about all the ancient civilizations uh, of the world. This is only 10 episodes long with some special episodes thrown in. Instead, what we're going to be talking about are the 10 big empires that I feel shaped the Near East. More importantly, this we're not going to be talking about those empires um, and giving their full histories. We're going to be looking at specifically at the way empire and religion intersect. This is why it's called empires of faith. So, for example, in our first episode today, we're going to talk about Sumeria and Acadia. And what we're not going to do is give you the entire history of Sumer or the entire history of the Akkadian Empire. We're going to talk about the way religion and empire intersect, how the imperial interests shape religion and how religion in turn shapes empire and how these two work hand in hand. And why I'm taking this approach is, one, this is my area of expertise. I'm a historian of empire and I'm a historian of religion. But also because I think that this provides a particularly interesting way of understanding the backdrop for the empires at collision at the dawn of of Islam, of the way the Byzantine world and the Sasanian world were at war with one another, and how those two ideologies and religions, Zoroastrianism and Christianity, with Judaism being caught up as a sort of client of the Zoroastrian state, how all three of these religions became the justification, the backdrop, the kind of intellectual world from which Islam emerged. And they are feature very strong uh, in the in the kind of message of Muhammad. So I'm not arguing that there's a direct line between Sumer and Muhammad, but I am saying that all of these empires worked in a particular time, in a particular place to create a certain climate and culture. So this is going to be a season of world history, of pre-modern world history, and hopefully it'll be interesting, it'll be useful, uh, maybe even as a resource for classes and students, or just fun to listen to. Take a little break from all the talk about Islam, and let's spend 10 episodes digging deep into the ancient world that gives birth eventually to the Middle East. So first, we got to start off with the understanding of what is these these kind of uh, emerging societies, and uh, most historians refer to them as civilizations, um, with some arguing that they could better understood as complex societies. Civilization has certain connotations to them that are that are a bit problematic. What what is a complex society? Where does it come about? And the answer is we have no freaking clue. The reality is that most historians don't know the shift from prehistory to history. We don't quite understand what happened that made people start to settle down. But we have some interesting ideas, and the evidence sort of is pointing to something. One of the clearest 
ways that I understand how complex societies come about is a result of climate change. That's right. Those two magic words that those on the right fear, climate change, right? They, it's not a hoax. It happened and it's happening again. Uh, but this time man-made and quite likely going to end all our lives by 2050. But that's besides the point. Um, Climate change, what happened is that the world started to get warmer. And as the world started to get warmer, this had an impact on people. We started to see that people moved away from migratory uh, lifestyles, from herding, um, and began domesticating. We started to see a shift from the kind of hunter-gatherer societies, which in and of themselves is kind of a problematic, overly simplistic way of understanding prehistoric peoples. But we started to see people domesticating animals, and the domestication of animals led to the rise of agriculture, sort of agricultural revolution. And we started to see the tie to to this agricultural revolution was the introduction of new technologies and tools, stone tools that allowed you to go harvest. And the settling happened in those areas that were rich in soil, in river valleys. And so we see them in the Indus River Valley, the Yangtze River Valley, in the Tigris and the Euphrates River Valley, and the Nile River Valley. This is the likely reason we start to see these complex societies develop. The shift in temperatures are changing the way that people had access to food. No longer fighting for survival by hunting and gathering, but instead farming. And when you farm, you start to have surplus. And that's the key here. Surplus is what gives rise to complex societies. Now, when I say complex societies or when I say civilization, what do I mean? What I tell my students is that it is a process of centralizing and building upwards. So it's kind of a force that brings you closer together and builds upward. This is the metaphor to help understand what complex societies are. And one of the major features is kind of notion of centralization means that it brings disparate kind of forces together. You, for example, have the building of cities. And cities is taking people that might have lived in kind of broad spaces and putting them into a smaller space. That's density. Urban populations, city populations, dense populations become a characteristic of complex societies. Monumental buildings, the building of ziggurats and pyramids and statues is another example of uh, complex society, and that would be the metaphor of building upwards. But as well, we start to see social hierarchy. When you have a densely populated people, and when you have surplus, some people have more than other people. The people who have more are at the top, and the people who have less are at the bottom. And so you start to see social hierarchy. And when you have a social hierarchy, you have a government. That is a social building upward, if you will right? You you centralize and you build upward. And the government is a central government, some type of government. You move away from uh, the kind of prehistoric governments where we probably saw communal decision making, we would probably saw more a, more of a gender equality societies, contrary to kind of the weird 
paleo diet myth that dudes have about it being predominantly men who are the providers based off of, of anthropological and archaeological studies we indicate that hunter-gatherer societies are probably matriarchal or gender equal with most of the food being produced by the gatherers not by the hunters uh, the hunters are mostly failures most of the time um, but when we start to see this, this kind of social hierarchy emerge we do see the emergence of a more patriarchal society with men having more and this is intimately tied to the fact that when you have city populations dense populations and you have social hierarchies and governments you also have war right so power is now defined by surplus and your ability to kill other people why do you kill and why do you declare war well if you're learning if you're aiming to gain surplus or you're aiming to gain resources and someone else has those resources will you kill that person and take their resources so this is there's kind of this process that comes about in which surplus is tied to value right and this is the emergence of what we would call an economy Right, or at least the early vestiges of an economy, and it's an agricultural-based economy. Right, there is some trade that's happening, there is some barter that is happening, but the predominant economy is not mercantile, it's not merchant-based. It is agriculture-based. It's based in foodstuffs, in cattle, in sheep, domesticated animals. Right, and so all of these centralization, social hierarchy, city density, as well as an economy, contribute to the rise in warfare. Another quality that, that complex societies have is specialization. This is again the kind of building upwards. When you start to have complex social hierarchies of people who have and people who don't have, you have the emergence of experts, people who specialize in certain things. They specialize in writing, they specialize in counting, they specialize in the way sheep get their hair cut, and, you know, then they take the wool and there's another expert who knows how to spin the wool and who then knows how to use the threads to make, you know, beautiful dresses. So this is specialization. Everyone begins, we start to see the emergence of artisanal skills we start to see artisans emerging and we start to really see individuals uh, becoming experts in their field and this is also tied to the two next component that is organized religion and writing writing is a specialized skill um, now we often think of, of, of pre-modern people as being illiterate and it's true that likely there wasn't a lot of literacy, but around 3,500 BCE, 3,500, we start to see the emergence of some form of writing. And that writing, we see that it had two components, a religious component, some sort of magical component that talked about the gods, that talked about uh, appeasing them and offerings, and then a, a mathematical component. Most of writing, may, the original source of writing, may actually not have been the desire for power or even for appeasing the gods. It may have originally emerged as just trying to keep count of what you have. I have this much grain, I have this many sheep, I have this many cows, and so on and so forth. And then eventually took on a sort of magical component uh, and, and was tied to religion. But both of these emerge out of specialization, or there's a sort of dialectic process here that to go hand in hand. Um, these are important elements that we're going to talk about on this 
this podcast more so than we talk about city population more so than we talk about specialization more so than we talk about the economy those are all very important components and even monumental buildings those are all very important components of complex societies and civilizations but what we're particularly interested in is the emergence of organized religion and its kind of tie to social hierarchy and government um, that's what we're particularly fascinated with now there is an argument over which society which complex society was really truly the first and the debate has always gone between egyptologists and sumerologists with most uh, historians kind of arguing that it's likely that sumer was maybe a little bit earlier than Egypt, while others argue that Egypt was a little bit earlier than Sumer. But both of them emerge relatively contemporaneous with one another, and both of them have the qualities that we discussed. The dense city population, social hierarchy, specialization, organized religion, writing, building, and economy. And when you start to have an economy and a surplus and specialization and a hierarchy, you also have warfare and they do clash this episode is going to be dedicated towards looking at that complex society that we call sumerian and the sumerians fall into kind of a a, a broader um series of civilizations that supersede uh, i use the acronym saba to help me understand to remember it, and i teach my students this and it's sumerian uh, akkadian babylonian assyrian those are the kind of, and then there's Neo-Babylonian and Neo-Assyrian and so on. But Saba is, is how I understand it. Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian, Assyrian. A series of kind of societies that, that, that overcome one another. The very first of them is Sumer. And Sumer is eventually conquered by Akkad. But we refer to that time period as Sumer and Akkad. The two blend each other really well. And I'll talk about why that is. Now, the, one of the earliest of these cities that had all these qualities that we talked about is Uruk and Uruk is in the the Tigris and the Euphrates river valley like uh, all of these societies that emerge and a lot of these cities are based around rivers they rely on the ability of those rivers to create a fertile environment for agriculture but more importantly or as or i should say as equally important is the river's capacity for travel and moving things so we see a lot of kind of small ship building we see a lot of routes going alongside the rivers it's easy to kind of follow rather than go out wildly into the desert you follow the river and it leads you and so a lot of the cities that we're going to talk about the, from Uruk to Ur to Nineveh are all settled between these two rivers and it is this experience with the rivers that I think transforms their understanding of religion and the world around them. So take Uruk, for example, uh, like I mentioned, the chief deity or the patron deity of Uruk is Inanna, who is a lunar deity, a female deity. Later on, she's believed kind of has some association with Ishtar, who is perhaps maybe connected to Asherah, maybe connected to Aphrodite. There's this kind of weird syncretism that happens later on in the Mediterranean world. Uh, but Inanna is a kind of goddess of fertility, a goddess of love, and a moon goddess. And she's often worshipped by 
um, a sex act, uh, the act of the king sleeping with the chief priestess. He would take on the role of a deity, she would take on the role of a goddess, and they would have sex with one another, and the, the act of having sex was believed to be a sort of form of sympathetic magic, or in this case, a sort of temple sympathetic magic, uh, you know, representing the fertility of the land, and by having sex together, they would then therefore ensure a good harvest, and so on and so forth. Here we see a very clear clear intersection between the government, that is the king priest, uh, with the actual priestly class of Inanna. So anyways, one of the myths of Inanna is that one day she decides that she's going to visit her sister in the underworld, Ereshkigal, the goddess of death, and she wanted to demonstrate her power, and so she decides to go down into the underworld, and at each level she is met by a gate and she pounds on the gate bam 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 let me in and Ereshkigal goes let her in but she has to take off her shoes and so she takes off her shoes she goes to the next she walks down reaches the next gate bam 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 let me in She's like, all right, but she has to take off her crown. So she takes off her crown. She has to take off her royal garments. She has to take off her royal garments. By the time she's reached Eresh Gigel, she's naked. And she has given up all of her power. And so Eresh Gigel binds her into the underworld. She's trapped. Here you have the goddess of fertility, the goddess of love, the goddess of the moon trapped in the underworld. You can't have that. And so Enki in particular becomes very worried. Enki is another god, a god of earth and magic and wisdom. And he's got an issue. So they, they have this agreement that they can, you know, that they, they'll release her uh, on some conditions. And so she returns back home to find her husband, Damuzi, hasn't missed her in the absence. He's hooking up with the chambermaids and the, the handmaidens and he's having all sorts of fun. He's like, oh, yeah, oh, Anana, I didn't know you were gone. My bad. And so she's like, well, you know what? Fuck you, Demuzi. And she banishes him to the underworld. He takes her place in the underworld. This myth of, of the moon descending into the underworld and then being replaced by Dumuzi, who can then only return on certain days, and when he returns back, he, con he has a conjugal visit with her. This is the, uh, the myth of fertility. This is the legend, the story, if you will, explaining the seasons, why there was winter and why there was summer, why there was a flooding season and why there was a planting season and a harvesting season. In other words, the experience of building the city in the Tigris and the Euphrates River Valley with its irregular flooding and with its fertile crescent that allowed for agriculture shaped the understanding of religion. Now we can, that's a very materialist way of understanding history. Uh, we can call it historical materialism of some sort. Uh, in this case, we're not really talking about technology or, or capitalism, but we are talking about environmental conditions shaping religion. Probably not what most people, what most people who believe in, in religion would, would argue, but as you, those of you who have listened to my previous podcast know that I try to understand religion through historical context and environment and see how religions are shaped by human experiences. And I think the human experience of the Tigris and the Euphrates River Valley really shapes ancient Sumerian mythology. I mean, we see this very clearly in Inanna's descent into 
to the underworld and her husband Demuzi replacing her. And we also see it in the Epic of Gilgamesh, probably the most famous uh, epic of, of the ancient world, uh, predates the Bible, predates the I Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, the Homeric epics, and really the kind of blueprint for all the flood narratives that emerge later on. Indeed, when there's an argument, a sort of literary theory, that the encounter between the early Israelite people, who we will be talking about on this podcast as well, the early Israelite people, with the uh, Babylonian and the Sumerian people, uh, is what allowed the the kind of myth of the floods to transfer from the Tigris and the Euphrates to uh, the Bible. In fact, because the Bible takes place while close to the ocean, not near uh, any particularly major flooding river. They have a, the River Jordan, but the River Jordan doesn't flood like the Tigris and the Euphrates does. The Tigris and the Euphrates flooding is what really cements the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, in which uh, there's a series of tablets, and Gilgamesh is this kind of part deity, part hero character. He's got a best friend named Enkidu, and they travel around the world causing all sorts of mischief. They even, in fact, meet Inanna at one point. But one aspect of the Epic of Gilgamesh is that the gods just get frickin' fed up. They get fed up with mankind because what happens is that mankind makes too much noise. And mankind, because they've made too much noise, the gods go, that's it, we're going to wipe everyone out with a massive flood. This tells us a little bit about the environment that the, uh, the ancient Sumerians and the Akkadians lived in. They lived in an area that the, they needed the flooding of the river. The river flooding made the area uh, perfect for agriculture. But unlike other river valleys, the flooding of the Tigris and the Euphrates was likely not regular, and it was probably more devastating than it was helpful. So there would be moments where it flooded, and it's like, oh, okay, it's a little bit wet, you can plant your, your grains and whatnot here, there's really good soil. But there's other times where it would flood and probably wipe out cities or do massive damage to crops and the people's ways of life. And so this kind of cruel view that nature both giveth and taketh away features prominently in Sumerian cosmology. The world that the Sumerians live in is not a happy world. It's a harsh world. There's sustenance, there's joy, there's happiness, but there's also sadness. And the end, we see this in the underworld. When Sumerians believed that people died and they went to the underworld, the underworld was a place of shadows. Everyone was a sh pale shadow of their former life, and they ate dust. So it wasn't full-on hell, but it certainly wasn't heaven. It was just a kind of existence. And this is likely because the Sumerian life was quite harsh. We know that uh, the same experience was with the pre-Islamic Arabians, that their view of the afterlife was quite harsh, that life was miserable, and when you died, you died. That was it. There wasn't a particularly big belief in, in the afterlife. There was no real Arabian eschatology before Islam. At least we don't believe so. And similarly, we find in the Sumerian world that the, the kind of harsh existence meant the afterlife was also kind of bleak and harsh. These all, the environment, all contributed to Sumerian religion. And in turn, Sumerian religion formed the background and the foundation for the first real empire in the ancient world. And that is the Akkadian Empire.
The Akkadian Empire starts roughly around two, uh, 2340, about 2340 BCE, by a guy named Sargon of Akkad. We have uh, uh, references of him in various kind of... Uh, you know, plates and, and, and tablets uh, and documents where he's referred to as Surukhan. And Surukhan is then made into Sargon and are kind of is anglicized into Sargon of Akkad. The most famous kind of inscription of his states, Sargon, king of Akkad, overseer of Mishkim, of Inanna, king of Kish, anointed of Anu, king of the land of Mesopotamia, governor of of Enlil. Now, why is this significant? Because here we have the crux of what I want to talk about in this season. Sargon is a conqueror. There are some early stories that he likely came from very humble origins, or he was a cup-bearer of a Sumerian king. But he eventually conquers Sumer and establishes the Akkadian Empire. This is the heart of, 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 of what I want to talk about, the beginnings of empire is in conquest. Empire is expansion. Empire is conquest. And it is the destruction and co-option of what comes before. This is a unique experience in the pre-modern world. One of the things that we're going to see repeatedly is that the assign or an attribute and characteristic of a successful empire is not just that it expands, but it has a sort of integrative component, a component in which the conquered people aren't just wiped out or subjugated, but are integrated and incorporated into the new fold. This allows for an easy transfer. As I once told my students, more often than not, the faces on the coins changed, everything else remained the same. For the ordinary person, they may not experienced any real change in their daily lives just that even their tax collector probably was the same guy but the coins might be different in reality many times the coins weren't even different we have instances for example of of the early umayyads using byzantine and sassanian coins and that's just the real the sassanians trying to rely on like old achaemenid coins it's just you know hey the coins are there might as well keep them anyways by referring him to himself as king of akkad overseer of Inanna. It's interesting. Who is Anana? Anana is a Sumerian goddess. So is Enlil. Now he eventually becomes known as Enki in the kind of Akkadian tradition. But what this tells us is that the Akkadian religion actually absorbs much of the Sumerian deities. Indeed, uh, the Sumerian kind of major triad, if you were, of An, Enlil, Enki, continue. We might see some differences in the way they're referred to. Some An becomes Anu, Enlil becomes Bel, Enki becomes Ea. We hear this kind of a shift, but the triad stays. In other words, they incorporate the Sumerian gods. What the Akkadians instead do is they elevate those gods. They centralize it. Rather than having a host of deities that are worshipped, one for every city, every patron city has its own god, and thousands upon thousands of gods, the new gods were a pantheon. There would be a handful of them, but those handful ruled over everything. They were more powerful than the Sumerian gods. They were elevated to sort of the level of high gods, if you will. And they were mostly deities of nature 
and deities of war. And this is interesting. The Sumerians had war deities, if you will. But in particular, most of their gods were sort of imminent nature deities. The gods of the moon, the gods of the sun, Shamash, quite famously of the sun, uh, Inanna of the moon, uh, Enki of the earth, and so on and so forth. They represented an explanation of what was going on in nature, as in the case of uh, the the story of, of Anana and Dumuzi, right? That was the story of the seasons and the, and the harvest. With the Assyrians, what we're or with the Akkadians, I should say, what we're starting to see first and foremost is the deities justifying expansion. Here is Sargon, overseer of Anana, king of Kish, anointed by Anu, blessed, given favor by Anu, the king of Mesopotamia. Why? Because Inanna, Anu, and Enlil make him the ruler of Mesopotamia. Religion and empire go hand in hand with one another. Particularly throughout world history, one could make the case. You know, the British Empire and and West and the kind of white man's burden that we saw, and the civilization civilizing message of the British Empire is intimately tied to its understanding of Christianity, the spread of Christ's message on earth. So similarly with the Islamic empires, right? So too do we see it in this particular moment. But this is the first real intersection of religion and empire in the ancient world. And it is a theme that will continue to all the empires up until early modernity and maybe even a little bit into modernity. And in which empires that expand, empires that grow, do so by justifying themselves religiously. And it is the introduction of these war gods, the introduction of these gods of combat, these conquering high gods, that allows Sargon to justify his expansion. He is king because the gods ordained him to, not because of some sort of cosmic balance or the need to balance out nature, but because he expressed might. And might becomes an aspect of divinity. The gods fight. Man, therefore, fights. The gods conquer, therefore, man conquers. The gods reward glory to those who fight. From Sargon of Akkad on, we have a template, and that is the template of a sort of heroic king, the template of a warrior king, the template of a king that is ordained by the gods. And we're going to talk about this when we talk about Zoroastrianism and Fars. We talk about Hura Mazda blessing the kings, like Shapur and so on. We're going to talk about this when we discuss uh, Roman religio and the way in the cult of the, em- of the Roman emperors emerged. We're going to talk about this when we talk about how Islam, right? The, the early imaginings of, of Islam, and even with the Byzantine Empire, right? And Constantine's adoption of the Cairo. This is the theme that I am most interested in the way that empire intersects with religion, and how the two are not seen as separate spheres of influence. There is no church and state, there is one church and state, and they are fused together. The king 
rules on high, and therefore he brings glory to the gods. He elevates them, builds temples to them, brings sacrifices to him to them. And in turn, the types of gods that are worshipped and how they are celebrated justify and legitimize the rule of the king. It is a symbiotic, you scratch my back, I scratch your back relationship. And it tells us a lot about the religion of the ancient world, particularly the Sumerian and Akkadian religion. Under the Akkadian tradition, the gods are powerful deities, but they are not particularly ethical or moral. These are not gods that tell you how to live your ordinary life. Sure, there are certain rules, and we'll see later on with Hammurabi how the, the, this becomes codified into a sort of sense of law. But before or Hammurabi, not really moral or ethical gods. These are gods of order. And we see in particular that what emerges tied to the, the emergence of writing, that in 3500 3, BCE, the emergence of writing, what ends up happening is that writing really brings about a particular specialization in the priestly class, and that is the expert in ritual. The priests are able to write down their rituals and therefore pass them down to be practiced by later priests. But the act of writing itself also becomes magical. It is something that the ordinary person may not be able to do. The knowledge of words and the knowledge of writing becomes not just another form of specialization, but the ultimate form of specialization, specializing in the language of the gods. So in addition to these kind of conquering deities that we see, we see also the sense of order and chaos emerge. When you have an empire, and an empire that establishes rule through some form of threat of violence, I have conquered you, you are now subjugated to me. That means there are those things that exist within the empire under the order of the sword, and those things that exist outside of the empire. What exists outside of the empire? War. You go to war with the people that are outside of your empire. In turn, this reflects the natural order, the order that we saw in the story of Inanna and Dumuzi, the, the seasons, in the story of the epic of, the, of Gilgamesh, the rising of the river, the flooding of the river, the withdrawal of the river. This kind of cyclical relationship between order and chaos becomes an important feature of Akkadian and Sumerian religion. The city is seen as the site of order. It is where the gods live. The gods don't just live out there. They are forces of nature that now reside within temples, specifically ziggurats, these step pyramids. And they're up at the top of these ziggurats. And you go and you give these gods praise, you give these gods worship, and you give these gods sacrifices, and these gods are sometimes carried through the streets in these giant processions, and they're placed in these ziggurats, and these sacrifices are to cultivate the power of that god. This power is known as melamu. Melamu is a sort of aura, a sort of 
power, a sort of uh, uh, feeling that the gods inspire in people. Fasien et terrible. They're both fascinating and they're both terrible. There's what a, you know Otto of Italy, a scholar of religion, originally called the numinous. This kind of experience of the other that exists out there. It's why we we experience God in the desert, right? It's why Jesus goes into the desert. It's why Moses goes up into the mountain. It's why Muhammad goes into the desert and the mountain. It's because there's something out there, right? When you're sitting out in the dark, in the desert, before the millions upon millions of stars that are blinking down upon you, in that quiet, in that cool, dark night, there is some feeling, a presence that you can't quite explain and it is awe-inspiring and we use the word awe-inspiring and awesome in its traditional meaning that it inspires both fascination and allure as well as a terror and this is uh, defined by the Akkadians as melamu. Melamu is this force that the gods have. And you want to cultivate that force. And you cultivate it through sacrifice and ritual and prayer. And how do you do it? You do it by the orders of the priest who, using their writing, are able to understand the expert ways in which to appropriate, appease the gods. But if you appease the gods, you cultivate their power. You also have to maintain the walls against chaos. And how do you do that? And you do that by appeasing also or or using apotropaic means of driving away demons. So we see in the Akkadian tradition, Sumer starts it, but Akkadian tradition in particular really incorporates this idea that there are gods and that there are demons. And the demons aren't necessarily evil per se, but they are chaotic. They are the children of an entity known as Tiamat. And we'll talk about Tiamat more when we talk about the Babylonians and the relationship of Marduk, who's really the kind of the ultimate, if you will, uh, manifestation of the kind of nature god and warrior god that we've been talking about. But in the Akkadians, we start to see the emergence of the notion of demons, and that what you would do is you would appease the demons. You keep them away from the city, the demons of the wind and the desert, and you would try to try to appease the gods to cultivate their power. So there's this kind of two-pronged relationship of cultivating and warding off. This becomes an important aspect of the Akkadian religion, and it is tied intimately to both their understanding of the natural world, that is a world in which uh, the rivers flood, the moon rises, the sun sets, as well as their understanding of empire. Empire is where order is established by force, by Sarukan, by Sargon of Akkad, and everything that exists outside the boundaries of empire are chaos, and it must be fought and defeated. So this is how we start to see that transformation of nature deities into these warrior deities. It is the emergence of empire. Empire, in other words, the desire to expand outward and to exert dominion is a result of the fact that you have these complex societies that are now producing surplus. Those surpluses, some people pass on their surplus. When you pass on your surplus, you've created a dynasty. Those dynasties become kings, and then those kings covet the surpluses of others. And when they covet the surpluses of others, they overthrow those kings. And if you overthrow several of those kings, and you unite them and bring all their surplus under one, 
then you've created the first true empire. And that is how the Akkadians did it. It's what Sargon of Akkad does. Humble beginnings, and he collects all the cities and he brings them together. And in turn, he appropriates the Sumerian deities. And when he appropriates them, they are transformed in the experience of empire, from an experience of nature to an experience of empire. This is the story of how religion and empire intersect. And this is the beginning. We begin with the Akkadians. We will end with Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. Hopefully this episode was interesting to you. Hopefully you learned something a little bit about the Akkadians. There's not a lot we know about them because they are an ancient people. We have some inscriptions. We have some stories. We have a little bit written down. For example, we have the King of Battle narrative that talks about uh, the the battle between uh, Sarukan or Sargon with the King of the Anatolians. Anatolia, Nurdagal. But other than that, there's not a lot we know. But as we move more and more closer to late antiquity, as we will get more and more details. Next time, we'll talk a little bit more about the Babylonians and Marduk and Tiamat, and we'll talk even more in-depthly about the religion that we've set up today, talking about the specific practices that the Babylonians did, and then we will move on to Egypt, and so on and so forth. Ten episodes. Hopefully you enjoy it. Thank you again for tuning in welcome back to head on history and remember stay smart you beautiful history nerds 